Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. My name is Noah Tolley. I am one of the collaborators on the Liberating Arts, and I serve as Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College, where I'm also Executive Director of the Center for Urban Engagement. And today we're honored to be joined by Dr. Karen Anhui Lee, who is the Provost at Wheaton College. She's in her first year. Uh, she's a poet, translator, and novelist who has held a number of faculty positions and administrative appointments and has recently joined us at Wheaton and we're very happy with that. Karen, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Dr. Noah. Um, before we dive into some institutional questions, I'd love to start by asking, what is your definition of liberal arts? As you know, everybody has their own way of defining this. Uh, some emphasize that liberal arts are a bounded set of subjects that only certain subjects belong or disciplines belong. Others say that breadth is the chief characteristic of liberal arts education. And still others emphasize the practice of making and drawing connections. And then there are those who say liberal arts is about liberation. And some would just say liberal arts is basically defined by what it's not, that it's not vocational, it's not professional. Those aren't mutually exclusive, of course, but they do represent different angles on the question. What's your angle? on liberal arts? Sure, that's a very interesting question, Dr. Tolley. And I'd probably say yes to all of those things, or at least part of those things. What's curious about these conversations about liberal education or the liberal arts in the 21st century is that there's a, there's a dichotomous type of approach that people take, we're not this, but it's that. Or if we take away that, then it's not this, or do this, or, you know, and sometimes prescriptive also. Um, I, I think that we need to put aside the bifurcation definitionally and look at holistically the education of whole persons as we do at Wheaton College and these communities of shared inquiry, of critical investigation together. Um, so for me, the liberal arts is really about a vision, a purpose, a holistic approach to a well-rounded education that, yes, is broad and integrative, but also foundation, and also has, as we say at Wheaton, Christ at its core. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you mentioned, you mentioned Wheaton a few times in that comment, and Wheaton's an institution that embodies the liberal arts in a particular way, and various institutions embody liberal arts in particular ways. They obviously have an important role in shaping, carrying on, and ensuring the vitality of the practices of liberal arts education. They're the way that liberal arts endures from one moment to the next, one generation to the next. What are the characteristics of an institutional home that you think are important for shaping a healthy home 
for the liberal arts? Sure. So um, I've been thinking about this phrase that I picked up someplace, um, you know, in the changing of changing ecology of higher education, these learning ecosystems. So what are some vitality indicators for a healthy learning ecosystem um, that, that has a liberal arts type of purpose, vision, mission to it, like Wheaton College, um, educating whole persons for Christ and his kingdom here. So um, a, a couple things I thought of, well, usually we would identify strong liberal arts programming by the types of programs that are present at an institution and are they well-funded? Is there scholarly and creative productivity and collaboration across the discipline? So here at Wheaton, we have the interdisciplinary studies program, for instance, that you know students can design their own uh, uh, lines of inquiry and research projects and even their own major in a sense through IDS. Um, but then I, I also thought about the fact that you can't just identify strong liberal arts programming by looking at what the majors are. So here's an example is in, in some nations, you have really good universities that have a lot of so-called liberal arts type of programming across the spectrum, including the sciences. And they're, they're not necessarily um, poised to educate free minds in a free society because of the government structure of the society limitations. So let's say there's no free press in a particular nation, and I won't give any examples, but there are a number of nations that don't have free presses. So the history books are, are propaganda. So we can't say, oh, okay, this is a liberal arts college because they have a history major. If all the history textbooks are propaganda, historiography is actually written by you know, government propagandists or something. Same thing for literature. If you can only read a certain type of literature that is prescribed or written by the government, that's not you know, what we would call liberal arts here at Wheaton College. Um, so then I started thinking about whether or not it's primarily a Western type of notion and what liberal arts might look like in different cultures, you know, liberal arts at, in Asian nations or in the nation of Kenya, liberal arts in the nation of Brazil or Argentina. Um, if we get away from sort of European systems or learning ecosystems, what would that look like in developing free minds and a free society so that we have individuals who can make good judgments, who know the history of ideas and can smell propaganda from you know a mile away <laughs> or something. So to, so to answer your question, which is a really interesting one, um, I think the type of curriculum is, is um, geared towards the development of whole minds, of whole hearts and whole persons to engage, to prepare students to engage societies as productive and civically responsible participants. Great, thank you. That's a great answer. And I want to revisit some of your comments about interdisciplinary studies toward the end. Um, I was an interdisciplinary studies major myself and a Spanish major, double majored in the two. Um, and I actually have a lot to say about how those things prepare us for doing a wide variety of activities, taking on a wide variety of responsibilities. But before we get to those things, I wonder if you can speak to how the Christian faith relates to liberal arts education. Why Christian liberal arts? And I want to get at one particular question here that has to do with the, the matter of the individual and the institution. Are, are Christian liberal arts institutions just an aggregate of individuals who go about their work in a certain way? Or is there some way in which the institution itself should embody certain Christian beliefs, practices, or even should imitate Christ? 
Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So Christian Liberal Arts Institution um, is a place where we can really live out Matthew 22. You know, I'm loving God with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, with all our being, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, too. So love God, love your neighbors, and then um, service as a part of that faith also. So translate the being, the ontology of being and who we are to phenomenology of experience and how we experience experience and thinking about experience and immersive learning in, in our ecosystem to actual, you know, prag pragmatism. So doing things, you know, theory into praxis. But all of that being faith-based, um, as Christians, we believe that um, God has revealed himself um, through language and through um, scripture to be the fullness of truth. And, and in fact, right now, we only get a glimpse of that full eternal truth in the Alpha and Omega. So um, a Christian liberal arts education would give us a bigger um, insight into what fullness of truth and pursuit of knowledge would be in educating whole persons. Now, I have a question about whether an institution should be all liberal arts all the time in order to claim the advantages of liberal arts education. And by claim, I mean both sort of claim as, as in possess them, like reach out and actually grab them and take hold of these advantages, but also say that they have them, right? Tell others that they are a liberal arts institution or they do liberal arts education. Um, you answered this a bit, a minute ago with reference to schools or institutions that might embody this differently in other parts of the world or pursue this project differently. But I wonder if you can specifically address this question of whether or not a professionally oriented school um, could have a liberal arts ethos or could have liberal arts programs that flourish and a liberal arts college might have professionally oriented programs that also flourish and perhaps even differently because they're in that context. Yeah, sure, why not? Um, I think that a liberal arts approach benefits STEM. Um, so, so in Taiwan, there's um, Furen Dashe. It's a, it's a university in a Judeo-Christian tradition. I, I think they're Catholic. Anyway, they're faith-based and they have a medical school. But um, I think they actually have a very liberal arts approach to medicine and to their vocational programs there, as well as their you know, typical humanities programs that you would associate with liberal arts. But once again, I, I don't necessarily think that having certain sets of majors means you're liberal arts, it goes beyond that. So here's an example is um, a Taiwanese filmmaker, producer, director, documentary um, artist. Uh, so I think his name is Meso Chen. He produced a documentary called The Silent Teacher. And it follows the life of a man whose wife is now deceased from cancer. And they had both before her death um, signed some documents to donate their bodies uh, future cadavers, if you will, to medical science, to Furen Dashe, to Furen University, in fact. And in fact, the documentary shows um, the faith integrated element and also liberal arts approach that the medical school faculty have in teaching medicine. So there's a holistic approach to looking at the entire arc of um, each person's life who donated his or her body to medical science. Um, there's a, there's a storytelling about um, his wife, who now deceased, and her 
body has been donated to medical science at the university um, for dissection, but very honorific, um, honoring of her story, honoring of his grieving, and treating life as sacred. And I, I think that holistic approach is very meaningful. Um, it also reminds us that we as humans, we're more than just things. Um, I think a danger of not having liberal arts education in a society is that it can easily gravitate towards um, dehumanization. It's easy for, you know, governments to drift towards, um, you know, uh, social Darwinism or utilitarianism or materialism, you know, return on investment as a bottom line, you know, and capitalism has a very dark side. If you don't have ethos infused with it. But this particular documentary, and once it's by Omiso Chen called The Silent Teacher, shows that particular dimension where in the sciences, if you have a um, human honoring, humanitarian approach, humanities approach, if you will, to um, technical knowledge, that you really get a fuller picture and the meaningful purpose of being human, of the phenomenology of human experience and the ontology of our being really comes to fruition, comes to life. And in particular, um, the scenes where the father is telling his story and then the daughter tells her perspective and then the medical students get to witness all of this. Um, it, it, it really brings together the meaning of community and a learning ecosystem within community and a space for healing too. So mm. I, I forget now what your original question was. <laughs> but that was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was actually a great answer to the question because it, it did affirm that a school that has uh, professional programs, the one that you're talking about in Taiwan, can also make room for finding meaning or making meaning and significance in the way that the liberal arts teach us to do. Um, and I actually have a follow-up question on that point. I often say that our institutions should teach students to make a living, make a difference, and make meaning or find significance in their communities, their work, their world. And I think as liberal arts institutions, um, we tend to be very good at talking about making meaning or finding significance. And we, we tend to be good at doing that, the making of meaning, and also at talking about how we do it. We tend not to be quite as strong in talking about making a difference, and maybe even worse at talking about making a living. And I think that uh, parents and prospective students come to us already wondering if we offer the kind of education that can teach them those things too. And so how would you respond to a prospective parent or student who said, yeah, I, I understand that you're great at teaching me how to make meaning and I want that or how to find significance and I want that. But how are you going to teach me to make a difference or make a living? Yeah, absolutely. So there is value in learning for learning's sake in our lifelong journey. And that is a skill that can be applied in multiple contexts. You know, we have years of life to live, all sorts of problems to solve, all people from all walks of life we will encounter, and learning how to learn in these multiple contexts and be independent and collaborative learners and problem solvers is a very important part of the liberal arts education. And we know from 
you know, the Harvard Business Review has presented research that shows that the top employers look for these top skills and these sort of soft skills from the liberal arts context are, are among the top. Um, so, so that's one thing I would definitely share. Another is that learning in the 21st century now has very permeable boundaries. Mm. And so we who are educators are continually aware of the fact that learning needs to have impact beyond the academy. Um, the academy is no longer just a physical building, but it's also in flexible modalities and occurs in these online pods of learning. Um, it, it's got different kinds of um, information that travels back and forth digitally. Um, students have digital fluency. We know them as digital natives. And so the permeable boundary of these learning ecosystems is no longer the sort of, you know, fish in a fish tank in the old Victorian sort of lecture format, but it's more of a terrarium that has, you know, these filters, um, some light can come in, a terrarium can travel to different areas. Um, I was born and raised on the East Coast, and when I moved to the West Coast for graduate studies, one thing that I found remarkable when I lived in the city, and I had never lived in a big, big city before, was that um, the greenery is right there, growing out of the sidewalk. So the hibiscus plant that would be in a greenhouse in New England would be you know, right, right uh, out of the rain gutter or something and avocado trees in people's front yards and lemon trees growing wildly all over the place outside orchards, outside greenhouses. Um, so to me, that's, that's what our 21st century learning ecosystem is like, is that we need to think beyond the physical symbol and the physical plant that um, the Victorian schoolhouse is and there's a certain charm to that certain order to that um, we also know that it was a very restrictive type of one-way learning that wasn't very active learning and uh, um, students um, were encouraged to be more passive learners and there are all sorts of dysfunctions with the Victorian education system i won't go into now but in 21st century um, there are different contexts where Wheaton can, uh, where any institution can, can um, ensure that their students thrive as whole persons. So Wheaton in Chicago is a wonderful example of that, actually, um, and the different cohort initiatives that we have um, across programs that we continue to develop. And so that deeply immersive, um, direct engagement with lived experience, as, as well as the, you know, the traditional formats of learning in which learning occurs too. So learning for learning's sake has its value, but we do need to articulate and translate the impact of that beyond the mm -hmm. academy. Mm -hmm. Great. So I wanna get into a few of the tensions experienced right now by institutions pursuing the liberal arts ideal in this moment. And, and I wanna start us out between pandemic and protest. Uh, in fact, uh, you won't be able to tell this from the website that this uh, video recording appears on, but the Liberating Arts started with a grant proposal that was called Between Pandemic and Protest, exploring the future of the liberal arts in higher education. And one of the questions that occurs to some of us is in highly charged situations, situations where significant oppression and real justice are at stake. How do liberal arts teachers and institutions promote personal formation and prophetically support in Christian institutions, kingdom values, while also retaining freedom for communal disagreement and critical inquiry about how best to promote 
such formation. That is, how do we all agree that it's something we need to undertake and all give each other space to do it differently according to our consciences, according to academic freedom, et cetera? Yeah, so that's a wonderful question, Dr. Tully. Um, and behind that is a question about what are the liberal arts in a time of crisis? Mm -hmm. And I think that people should, um, people in the academy can get together to talk about what the crisis is and what are some of the ideologies driving interpretations of the crisis and problem solving around the crisis and narratives that come out of the crisis and who's controlling those narratives. And those are all big liberal arts type of questions to grapple with, is who's controlling the narrative, who's getting the information, how we you know this information is accurate. And so when we're asking students to evaluate their secondary sources, that's a form of critical um, thinking approach that is um, core to a, a liberal arts uh, methodology or, or type of um, philosophy. And also, um, another thing is that it can be uncomfortable for people who share a common faith um, to disagree with each other. But I, I think that we're, we're perfectly capable of disagreeing civilly. And beyond agreeing to disagree is that maybe there's some sort of constructive approach where we can support each other in the common pursuit of greater knowledge and greater truth, at least to see the other sides of the argument and understand the rationale rationale for them and provide a constructive critique if you're so behooved to do so. Yeah, I love that answer, Karen. Um, if I might just follow up on it briefly, um, not with a question, but with a comment. One of my favorite essays uh, by Nicholas Wolterstorff is about educating for justice, shaping how students are disposed to act. And he talks about shaping students uh, who start with a prerequisite cognitive framework that is a, a Christian social ethic and the ability to discern sort of structural and systemic social issues. And then following that up with reasoning, modeling, empathy, and discipline. And so I can hear in what you're saying, um, not only the reasoning, but also the modeling as well, that we need to model how we interact with sources, how we interact with each other charitably on campus. Um, so I think that's that's very helpful for us. Thank you. Yeah, helping to shape those habits of mind that are illuminated by Christian virtues. Yeah. So what do you think about globalizing and diversifying liberal arts education? Um, liberal arts, some liberal arts subjects have a history of teaching certain authors and texts, certain composers, artists, performers, that these are these are the sort of canon for that subject. Uh, but liberal arts institutions also have various reasons to, glo to uh, globalize or diversify their student bodies, uh, their faculty and staff, their curriculum. Another way to put this, to what extent should teaching philosophy necessitate including Plato and music necessitate including Bach and so on? And to what extent or to what degree does it need to be more diverse and global mean that such assumptions shouldn't be operational in the same way that they used to be? Sure, so we have, you know, 
we also have the revisionist canon. And of course, the canon brings up questions, at least in, in my field of literature, who decides who the canon is mm -hmm. and who's been asking those sets of questions and are those questions still relevant? And you know, if we add Toni Morrison to the canon, then you know, do we also add Isabella Allende and you know, the, um, other authors of um, American diversity? And, and then what about global diversity? So then Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And so um, I'm for an inclusive canon and revisiting the questions that we ask about canon um, over time and frequently. And I think that um, what's important is to realize that other nations have their own canons that we miss out on. So in, in a way, Americans have tunnel vision, even though we're a uh, a nation of immigrants and people bring in their bits of culture from everywhere, and whether we're a salad or a melting pot or whatever we are now, that in, in fact, um, we aren't the only canon that exists. And so when we look at history, when we look at philosophy, um, my parents' education, when they read classical Chinese literature, classical Chinese philosophy, looked very different from what I read out of the Norton Anthology, for instance, or even the Heath Anthology, which is considered more revisionist, at least when I went to graduate school. And so um, it, this is all to say that context and knowing context is very important to equipping our students as whole persons who need to have impact, will have impact beyond the academy uh, right now and also one day soon, if not sooner than later. And so we, we don't want tunnel vision. We don't want to you know, be, be very narrow and uh, keep asking the questions. I think it's important that we look at you know, what we are possibly missing out on. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a related question that isn't about what we teach, but about who we teach. Um, liberal arts education has a history of being fairly exclusive. Um, in its long history and in its origins, it was obviously very exclusive. And yet today's institutions have interests in accessibility. We want to make what we do accessible, available to a wide array of students from a wide array of backgrounds. How do you see the relationship between liberal arts, sometimes tendency toward exclusivity or elitism and institutional commitments to accessibility? Yeah, so this is about the democratization of access to information, um, who produces the information, who can understand the information and, and who can, you know, use it. And so um, I I know that our library is very interested in having an open platform where this information about Wheaton's history, Wheaton's archives, as well as its um, holdings can be shared with a larger community as a sort of um, pro bono or for humanity type of um, uh, resource. I think that's very exciting, this idea of a dynamic learning commons and learning resource platform that's um, resource by Wheaton College, but then accessible to say global people um, who want to access them. Um, I think that it's it's a type of um, philanthropic gesture. Um, it, it there's yeah. So I I tend to gravitate away from the more sort of ivory tower notion of a college education or a bachelor's degree or a graduate's degree and and. Uh, more towards the, you know, as many people as possible can afford it, can access it, and be utterly transformed by higher education. Mm -hmm. so, so speaking of ivory tower, uh, I want to take this in, in a financial direction here. Um, 
Some would say that we're here to shape the desires and interests of the students who choose to engage in liberal arts education. On the other hand, most institutions need to be responsive, at least to some extent, to the desires and interests of prospective students and their parents. That is the desires and interests they bring in, not only the ones we get to shape once they're here. Um, and this seems to some people to be a tension between the sort of liberal arts ideal of formation, education for education's sake, learning for learning's sake, we do formation here, who you are when you leave is more important than who you are when you come in. And on the other hand, what people want from us and what they want to pay for. It seems to some contrary to a liberal arts ethos even to take those factors into account. How do you reconcile those things? Sure, so I'm a living example of uh, choosing a major that was sort of, you know, fuzzy, say, in the minds of some people who are close to me, but still being gainfully employed in my middle age and, and so forth. So, so I'm a poet, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, being a poet has been very helpful in equipping me to understand people, to understand um, different contexts, to translate um, across different contexts, um, different kinds of messaging that I need to do in an organization or outside it. And I think that what we should share with um, constituents who might be a little suspicious <laughs> is, is that, in, in fact, um, liberal arts approach um, and also humanities types of degree programs have multilinear pathways. Mm -hmm. So there might not be a clear one-to-one -one connection between the major that I declared and a job upon graduation. But in, in fact, it equipped me with the types of attitudes, habits of mind, character, transformational experiences that then were transposed into work context and also in graduate school um, so that I was well prepared for life for working with people, for writing things, for communicating, for thinking on my feet, for arguing in a civil manner. <laughs> yeah, so, so these are the types of so-called soft skills that um, industries, if you will, are still very interested in. And in fact, um, I think it was Forbes or Harvard, Harvard Business Review that recently just put out a number of essays about this too. Hmm. So you've actually already answered the next question I was going to ask you. I'll give you, I'll give you a shot at adding anything to it if you'd like. Um, the next question I was going to ask was, how does your formation as a poet, writer, or translator shape your approach to academic administration? And I sometimes tell people when they say, um, what am I gonna do with a Spanish major, for example? I say, well, I was a Spanish major, and you might go get a PhD in public policy if you're a Spanish major. There are all sorts of things you can do with that. Um, you might, if you're a poet or if you're a former English professor, also become a provost and translate those skills into administering the entire academic division of the college. So you touched on these things a minute ago. Do you want to add anything that's really helpful to you in your day-to-day -day academic administration work from your training? Yeah, so um, I often get asked, you know, so how does poetry relate to, you know, working with um, faculty or academic operations or looking at budget spreadsheets? And, and it does because um, reading poems, 
requires a certain quality of thought where you can unpack from distilled language um, an elaboration or extension of meaning and then say something about it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and sometimes on the spot. Um, workshop critique, so um, a lot of the humanities type of seminars have discussion or critiques or workshop critiques in them. And being able to write a critical paper around a central idea with a focus and then define it, expand it, and then um, provide evidence for your thesis, that, that's actually extremely valuable when you're trying to make a case for something. Um, my current position is helped by the fact that I picked up some quantitative skills along the way with some certifications. And so those skills I could pick up because I had learned how to learn and teach myself certain things and ask questions. And, and um, you know, so, so the sort of the flexible brain that can work in qualitative and quantitative modes too is something that I had picked up from being a poet as well. Which is not to say that, you know, all poets should become administrators. <laughs> I have plenty of poet friends who probably would prefer not to do what I'm doing. Um, so each to his or her own. I mean, you really do have to follow your, your passion and your calling. But, um, and so I know that um, parents and students are interested in practical examples of how, say, people in my discipline, an English major or a history major, philosophy major, arts major, music major, um, survived after graduation and were able to pay off their school debt, etc. And it's multilinear pathways that don't necessarily have a clear one-to-one um, nomenclature between the name of a major and then whatever they'll do. But, you know, the research show, and I think once again, this is something like the Harvard Business Review where related publication shows that bachelor's degrees in the humanities, you know, they still make $10,000 more than high school graduates. So there, people are looking for a return on investment in this particular economy of crisis. I understand that. Um, it is still worth it. And then towards middle age, you, you might find yourself a provost if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question about something we don't think about much in the US context. Um, liberal arts are much older than the United States tradition of liberal arts colleges. In fact, liberal arts are much older than colleges and universities, period. They, they predate anything that we would recognize as a college or university. So historically speaking, there have been other institutional homes for the kinds of formation envisioned and practiced in liberal arts education. To acknowledge that is to open up a broad landscape of possible institutions within which we can embed liberal arts learning. Aside from colleges and universities, where else might we think of making a home for liberal arts education? Yeah, for us in the CCCU, you know, churches, parachurch ministries, definitely. Um, so partnerships um, with churches and their ministries, as as well as um, home. You know, when when people are homeschooled. Uh, but also, I've been wondering: is there a place for liberal arts education in the workforce? Mm. So, I I know that there are for-profits, we are not one, but there are for-profits that um, are embedded with for-profit educational programs that are embedded with um, corporations. And so 
um, there's, you know, this and such a corporation university. And so if you get hired at that corporation, they'll send you to this university, you'll get a degree from that university and so forth. Um, there are hospitals that are building their own medical schools and then paying the way for the medical students to come back to that particular hospital or healthcare network. And so I'm looking at all this, but what about the liberal arts? I mean, there, there must be a way for us to a piggy, not piggyback, but embed ourselves, as you say, in these workforce situations. I, I, so this led me to think about um, the French philosopher, Simone Weil, mm -hmm. who after her very powerful conversion experience then went to work in some French factories, which is a really grueling experience that broke her. But she, she wrote that, um, she believes that workers and laborers need poetry more than bread. So I was thinking about this. You know, Simone Weil had a sort of liberal arts type of experience in the French Renault factory, um, probably not one that I would want to send our students to, given that she was working at a furnace and it was, you know, the labor conditions were just terrible back then. But that she learned something holistically, meaningfully, and, you know, wrote a lot of essays about it, about labor and, and faith um, and her relationship to God. So what is the living bread of liberal arts education in a Christian college type of context that we could connect to labor, to workforce experiences, and you know, not have the nonprofit sector of education just sort of consume these opportunities, but we can be there making a difference, you know, sort of, sort of like a mission field of education or something, um, so that workers have poetry, they, and poetry is bread, and they have the living bread as well. Mm -hmm. Great answer. We need to explore that um, for this project, that's for sure and perhaps at a lot of our institutions across the country. Final question for you. This project in its first phase is organized partly around generating more questions. Somebody asked me, well, if you have a grant for this, um, what's your key question and what are your methods for getting at it? And we did talk a little bit about that, but I said actually the first phase is about collecting additional questions. It's about not pretending that we know going in what all the questions ought to be. So we're asking a lot of our interlocutors this final question. What do you think are the biggest challenges and questions for liberal arts education right now? If you had to ask a few, what would they be? Yeah, so these are the typical questions I think we're all asking is how to make it more accessible, affordable, and also retain academic quality and rigor. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. We will certainly add that to our list, our library of questions that's growing now and that will inform the next phases of the project. Uh, Dr. Anhui Lee, thank you for being with us this afternoon and we look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much, Dr. Noah Tolley.